Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspire Churches podcast. We're a church in Union City that loves Jesus. Our hope is that you'd be inspired to grow in God's word as reflected in loving Christ more and more every day. So wherever you are, be a light. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Good morning, Inspire Church. How are you guys? <laughs> Man, I hope today so far has been a good day for you. I don't know what getting up on a Sunday morning and coming to church is usually like. For some people, it might be pretty easy. You're already a morning person, and you're used to getting up at like 4 or 5 a.m., and, and so this is like nothing. For others of you, it takes a little bit longer to get out of bed, and then you have you know crazy kids to try to get ready and all this stuff. But however that you came here this morning, I pray that while you have been able to worship God uh, and while you are sitting there this morning, that you are feeling his presence, his peace, and his love um, in Jesus' name. So it's so good to see you guys here. Well, I'm excited because we are starting a new series called Dear Inspire. Dear Inspire. Um, And before I get into the teaching, because it might be a little didactic, maybe we'll see, uh, and I'll try not to make it too boring. Um, There's a little poem that says, the color of my pastor's eyes, I really do not know. For when he prays, he closes his, and when he preaches, I close mine. And so I hope that that doesn't happen this morning. But we'll see. We'll see. So you might have to just you might have to just nudge your neighbor a little bit and just say, "Wake up! You can endure it." Uh, but I no, I really am excited for this morning's message. But before we get into it, I just want to kind of remind ourselves. I want us to go back and see the journey that we've been on. Some of you may not know this, but uh, Pastor Phil went on a sermon getaway um, last year, and he basically was seeking God and and uh, and he had collected different data from the elders and from the leaders. And, and he went and just saw and said, okay, Lord, what is it that you're wanting to teach Inspire Church, do with Inspire Church? And through that, uh, you know, he came up with the, a year's worth of, of sermon series. And it's really interesting because each of, these, uh, each of these sermon series has really been taking us on a personal journey. So just to remind you, for those of you, because I know everybody here remembers every sermon that we ever preach because it's just that good. But for those of you who don't, um, <laughs> it's true, right? Isn't it crazy how we do, like, how was church? Oh, it was phenomenal. People were worshiping. And, oh, what was the message about? Oh, I don't Yeah. Okay, anyway. Um, so... We, we sort of kicked it off with a theory called, with a theory, with a series called Inspired Church. And basically there, you know, with so much cultural confusion about what the church is, past church hurt, it was, it's really hard for the people to, to love the church. And so what we asked, he said, wait a minute, what, what, not what does the culture say the church is, or even what does our experience say the church is, but what did Jesus say the church was, if you guys remember that. And so we went through what that looks like. And then we went to another series. The next one after that was called Beautiful 
beautiful community. And this was very impactful. Basically, our goal was just to really talk about what does the real and raw, godly community look like? This broken community, community where it's not filled with perfect people. We offend each other. You know, we, we get on each other's nerves. We annoy each other. But also, what is it supposed to look like? What does it mean to love each other that maybe, maybe somebody has a different political view than you, that maybe has a different up, up, upbringing than you, and so on and so forth? Next was the series God With Us. And this was our Advent series. If you remember, we went through the tabernacle and we pointed how all of these various features in the tabernacle were foreshadows and pointing to Jesus Christ and ultimately pointing to the fact that God is Emmanuel, God with us. He tabernacles with us. Even right now, his spirit is tabernacling inside of you that you now are the tabernacle of God. And then we moved on to this next series called Rhythms of Life. Very profound series where we really talked about what does it look like to have a rule of life and we challenge you to really take inventory of the current rhythms that you have and which rhythms in your current life are life-giving and which ones are life-depleting. And then we invited you in to really gospel-centered rhythms that we believe would give you breath and life um, into your everyday rhythms. And then we went to the series that we just came out of, Substitute Saviors, and a and, you know, who can forget the shelves, the crickety shelves that I was always scared I was going to knock down and one step too many, you know, and if I ate an extra donut that morning, who knows if this stage is going to make it, right? And so uh, substitute saviors, and we really challenge you like, hey, we want you to be able to identify the idols that are out there, discern the idols that are in here, and then apply the gospel. All of these sermons have really been introspective. That they've been sermons that have caused us to really look at the mirror and really ask, who are we in Jesus Christ? Who are we really? And so this last series is kind of a bookend to this whole journey that we've been on. And I'm excited. And it's called Dear Inspire. And really what we're looking at is we're looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation, the letters that were, the letter that was written to them, and really asking ourselves, well, if Jesus were to write inspire a letter, I wonder what Jesus would say. What would he include in it? If he was speaking to us today, this morning, what would he say? So I'm excited to introduce this uh, sermon series this morning, kind of kick it off. Uh, so let me just do this. Let me pray. And then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you because your word is true. I thank you, Lord God, because you are faithful. I thank you, Heavenly Father, because no matter what else is going on in our week or what else is going to happen in the week to come, that we are here gathered together confessing the gospel truth that we are free and free indeed because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I pray that as we mine the text for all of its worth and wealth this morning, that your spirit will illuminate it unto our spirit, into our minds, into our hearts, that we may continue to be shaped and fashioned into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. amen. Now, for those of you who come into these Sunday morning services and instantly you are all of a sudden time aware, you are time conscious, right? You're, you're never as more time conscious as you are on Sunday mornings, and you're just kind of timing, okay, when is he going to get to point one, and how many minutes between point one and point two, and you guys got it down, and you're worried if we're going to make it out in time for the restaurant and all this other stuff. Let me just let you, let me just tell you this at the beginning, so that way you don't have a heart attack, and you're like, well, when is he ever going to get to point one? Um, because this is the beginning of, of the sermon series, I just need to lay down a foundation before I get to the points, but I will get to them, and I won't keep you too long. Amen? Amen. 
Okay, that was probably the best amen we'll get all day. There we go. Yeah, don't keep it too long. Make it short. Short and sweet. Okay. Um, this letter um, that we have called the book of Revelation is really interesting. In fact, the New Testament really are almost all letters. Like you, when you look at, for instance, the book of Ephesians that was written, it's a letter written to the church in Ephesus. Right? We call them books, but really they're letters, right? Or the two letters written to the church of Corinth, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. You've read those, right? Um, or Colossians, Galatians, so on and so forth. In fact, even 1st and 2nd Peter um, and James were written to the 12 tribes that were dispensed. And these are letters. These are letters. And so what we are looking at when we read the book of Revelation is we are looking at one letter and this letter was sent to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is really Turkey today. It's Turkey today. And so what happens is, is uh, when you look at the seven churches that are in Turkey, uh, it's interesting because what you'll see laid out there is sort of this circular route on where these seven churches are located. And then you'll see this island and it is on this island that John was writing out this letter called Revelation. Now, not Revelations, Revelation. It's one revelation, one letter, one revelation written to these churches. Now, what's really important is as we go through this series, what I want you to know, and it's not just this letter, but really all the letters of the New Testament, they were written to them. They're written to them but they're written for us. Do do you see what I'm saying? To them, but for us. And that's going to be really important as we begin to really dive in to what this letter says. Now, what's interesting is this letter was written about 60 years, give or take, after the resurrection um, of Jesus Christ. And this is when John begins to write this letter. And um, he is on the island of Patmos, and he's been exiled there. And the reason he's been exiled there is basically because he kind of refuses to die. Um, Every disciple other than John and Judas were martyred. And uh, John, people tried to martyr John, but he just wouldn't die. All of their attempts failed. And so the Roman emperor finally got tired of it. And he says, fine, let's just exile him. Right? And so that's what happened. He got exiled to this island. And it is there that Jesus comes to him, just like Jesus appeared to Paul after the resurrection. Jesus comes to John and shows him this revelation. And it's interesting that it's 60 years after the resurrection. In other words, John is an old man at this point. But it's actually good that John did not start writing his books, if you will, until later in life. Because what we have in John, we don't necessarily have in the other synoptic gospels. Because not only did John write Revelation, he obviously wrote the book of John. And in the book of John, it is part of the synoptic gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But John holds stories that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't. And here's why. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them say that when they started writing their Gospels, you can read it, they they let you know, that this is after John has already been imprisoned. Well, John was imprisoned after two years of Jesus' ministry. And so really, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are focusing on the last year of Jesus' ministry, his third year. 
And so John wanted to write a book that sort of covers the first two years as well. So you'll get stories in John that you won't get in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For instance, John 1, he begins by saying that God was in the beginning. In the beginning, God. And he starts it just like Genesis does, and he does it on purpose. No other gospel does that. Then in chapter 2, you'll find the first miracle of Jesus when he turned uh, water into wine. You won't find that in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. In chapter 3, you have the conversation of Nicodemus. In chapter 4, the woman at the well. In chapter 5, uh, uh, the blind, you, you have the healing of the blind man. In chapter 6, he describes him, Jesus describes himself as the true bread that came down from heaven. In chapter 7, he describes how he is the Messiah and that he has uh, equal authority with the Father. In chapter 8, he, there's the woman caught in adultery. You, again, you don't find that in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Chapter 10, that he is the good father. Chapter 11, that you, we see that we read about the raising of Lazarus, and that was Pastor Phil's message last Sunday, the Easter message. Chapter um, 12, the anointing uh, of, the, of the body for burial. Chapter 13, the washing of the disciples' feet, and so on, and goes on, and so it goes on. You find that there are these stories in John that you don't have in Matthew, Mark, and, Luke. and part of that is because John wrote those later, and we are grateful for that. And John also wrote Revelation when he was older in his age. Now, I understand that when it comes to Revelation, um, for some, there's some sort of, you know, excitement there and mysteries. For others, there's apprehension, right? Because we don't like to deal with the book of Revelation. For many of us, the language is somewhat scary. There's the verbiage in Revelation doesn't sit well, right? But let me just say this. For every believer that is here this morning, you should be excited about the book of Revelation, you should be excited because the book of Revelation is the most powerful eschatological ending that God has already ordained for humanity and creation. In essence, what the book of Revelation sums up, what it really says, what it comes down to is this, God wins. That's really what it says, that God wins. Now, I know we get up caught in the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast and all that stuff, but let me just say right now that the singular theme for this letter of Revelation is that God wins and that those who are in God win as well. Those who are in God win as well, which means that no matter what happens, what transpires, what Armageddon looks like or anything else, that if you are in God, you are guaranteed to be victorious. I grew up in a church that just right there, we got some people running. That was your moment to shout because you might not have any more this sermon. That was it. You missed it. And I get it. The book of Revelation is important and its language is unique because its language is apocalyptic. It uses a lot of symbolism and imagery and metaphors. So essentially, the book of Revelation is a picture book. It's a picture book that helps us to understand and see ultimate reality, ultimate reality. That's sort of behind our observable materialistic reality. You see, it's a peering back of the curtain. And this letter was written to churches that were undergoing particular sufferings and persecutions. Uh, various churches that was dealing with opposition and all forms of hardship. And so what was, at the time, most people who were non-literate, the church, of uh, the book of Revelation gives pictures of comfort, pictures of hope. Yeah. 
visions of something that will be of peace, that will help people deal with persecution and suffering and opposition and hardship. In fact, that's why you begin to see pictures and paintings and portraits go up in churches because for many people who were illiterate, these pictures and portraits all of a sudden brought the text alive to them, you see. For instance, you have the lamb on the throne, which means that there is somebody who reigns. There is a God who reigns, but who is gentle. He is meek and he is kind. Revelation lets us know that there was a glassy sea. And what that means is that in the midst of chaos and turmoil and all of that stuff that we are used to, there in the new heaven and new earth, we will be at peace. There is a city, a city full of fruit trees, a river of life. There is the illuminating presence of the holy God. It is a place that is safe and welcoming, life-giving and flourishing, opposed to the dark and hostile world, specifically in these particular times that the church was in. Wow. And so this letter was written to comfort the churches but it was also written to challenge them, to comfort them and to challenge them. And so as we read the, these letters to these seven churches, and really that's found in Revelation chapter two and Revelation chapter three, so that's what we'll be during this series, what you'll see is you'll begin to see a pattern. And this pattern really is in all seven letters, uh, two of them, it's a little bit hard to discern and kind of point them out. It's not as obvious for some of in, in two of them, but they are there. But really there's three areas, three patterns that you're gonna see. I'm gonna actually add a fourth one which is this. Number one, the first thing you're going to see is a confession or a declaration. You're going to see something that at the very beginning that Jesus is describing who he is. He's informing that church who he is. Next, you'll see a commendation or a praise, right? He's, they, they praise, he, he's giving praise for something to do. Next, you'll see a critique or a challenge. And then finally, you'll see a covenant or a promise, so a confession, declaration, commendation, praise, critique, challenge, covenant, or a promise. And each of these is saying, listen, here's, here's where I see you. Here's things that are praiseworthy. Here's something that I want to challenge you with, something that I want to bring to your attention. And if you do those things, if you're able to overcome, then here's the promise. Here's what's going to happen. So that's going to, that's going to be sort of the pattern, the outline for these sermons. Now, where we're going to start today is Revelation chapter 2. But before we get to Revelation chapter 2, we have to understand Revelation chapter 1. Because Revelation chapter 1 really begins to mature us to understand the realized work of Jesus Christ. What chapter 1 simply gives us is that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. That he is the all total sufficient savior. That he is the sole water that has satisfied all the requirements for high redemption, you see. He, in chapter one, we realize that Jesus is king. That he is our lamb. That he is the sacrificial lamb. That his blood was shed. That our sins have been forgiven. And that we have access to the very throne of grace. And so we cannot really start talking about chapter two unless we understand that about Jesus in chapter one. Yeah. So now that we sort of have the framework in our minds and the lenses that we're gonna see this through, let's read chapter two. Revelation chapter two, starting in verse one. It says this. 
to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. See how you're starting to get images already? You see somebody holding seven stars in their hand. You're seeing lampstands. You're seeing somebody walking in the middle of them. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered, and you have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Wow. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did first. Now, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But if you have this in your favor, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. I told the first church, I thought that was Nickelodeon, but okay. Which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear that the spirit, what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice it says to the churches. See that? To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. So as we go through this passage this morning, there's three things I kind of want to bring to our attention. Number one is this, is the life of love, the life of love. Second is the warning about our loves. And third is the promise of new love. Okay, so the life of love, the warnings about our love, and then and the promise of new love. Now, notice here when Jesus begins to confess, when he begins to declare, proclaim who he is. Right? Um, he says here that he's that he's declaring that he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden lampstands. So immediately we have to say, well, wait a minute, what are the stars and what are the lampstands? Now, to the Jews, the lampstands was pretty obvious because in the Jewish temple here on earth in Jerusalem, the lampstand represented the presence of God. It was the presence of God among his people. And so now John is seeing inside the heavenly temple and he's seeing the presence of God again. Now, what's also interesting about this is that we don't have to really look too far to try to figure out, well, what is it that Jesus means by lampstand? Because he actually tells us in chapter 1. Look at this. Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. He says this, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. So Jesus is saying, listen, you're probably wondering, what's these stars? What's these lampstands? He says, this is what it is. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, so that lampstand is pretty clear. The, the imagery of the lampstand means that each of these historical Physical located churches were lampstands. A lampstand represented a church. A church represents a lampstand. What's maybe not so clear is, well, what are the seven stars? It says that these seven stars are the angel to each of these seven churches. Well, what does that mean? Well, commentators, theologians have different takes on what these mean. One is that it means that there is literally every church has this literal guardian angel at this church and God is speaking to them first through them to the church. 
okay? The second um, thought about what, the, what, the, what these angels are is that these are messengers and that they are actually the pastor of each church, the pastor of each church. And you say, well, why do they think that? Well, because that Greek word, angel and messenger, are simultaneous. In fact, when Matthew talks about John the Baptist, he uses that same Greek word. He calls him an angel, a messenger, right? Or also, let's look at the book of Revelation. So in the book of Revelation, what's happening? An angel is basically taking John on a tour of what's happening in the spiritual realm. And, and when this angel appears, what does John do? Well, John, at some point, eventually, he begins to bow down and worship this angel. And the angel says, no, 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 don't do that. Now, why does he say not to do that? Well, he says, look at this, Revelation 22, verse 9. He says this, he says, uh, he says do not do that. He says, for I am your fellow servant of your brethren, the prophets. In other words, he, in other words he's saying, don't bow down to me. I'm, I'm one of you, Right? And so there are many theologians and biblical commentators and scholars that will say that these angels are, in fact, the pastor of the churches. And then there's a third view. It's not as popular, but still, it's pretty, uh, it, it has a strong case, which is that the lampstands and the stars are basically one and the same thing, that, that God is, is just talking about the churches in general. Now, what's fascinating is that John begins at the heart of Asia Minor and goes sort of around. And really, with this first letter, he gets to the heart of the matter. And he begins to talk about first love. First love. Now, when John talks about first love, he does not mean chronologically, right? He does not mean, I want you to think about the first person you ever fell in love with. Right? So it's not trying like, you know, think about that boo you had back in, you know, the 12th grade or whatever. Like, we ain't trying to bring up the old exes or, you know what I'm saying? That's under the blood. Thank you, Jesus. You know what I mean? Lord, if she came through this door, I still might pray a curse over her, but that's okay. Just kidding. <laughs> it's been forgiven and forgotten. <laughs> but that's not what John's talking about. Go ahead, baby. Yes, Lord. Go ahead. I, I won't, oh, never mind. I won't go there. <clears throat> anyway. Um, and so, well, we say, we laugh, Beck and I laughed because when we met was at university, and she actually used to get, who was my fiance at the time, ready for our dates. And, uh, you know, anyway. But we won't go there. <laughs> uh, praise Jesus. Yes. Um, but John's not saying to go back there. Praise the Lord. He's not talking about chronology, chronologically, what is your first love? But what is he talking about? He's talking about priority. Who is your first love when it comes to priority? Now, Augustine, who was the fourth century bishop in North Africa, he once wrote about this very topic. And he talked about the notions of our loves in order, the loves in which we begin to organize and prioritize the rest of our loves and the rest of our life, right? Essentially, he said that the heart, at the heart is the challenge where we have to decide not so much even what we're going to love, even though that is a decision, but even where does that particular love fall in priority, Right? The love that I have for my wife 
versus the love that I have for my job versus the love that I have for you as a church versus the love that I have for Jesus Christ. It's okay for me to have all those loves, but where do they fall in order and priority? Do you see? And so when he says your first love, he's saying, he's asking a question. He says, what is it? What out of all the loves that you have, which one holds priority? You see, that's what he's saying. Because it is by that love that you will index and organize everything else in your life. For instance, if you're an athlete and your first love in athletics is baseball, everything else, all other particular loves and what you do in life circles around that. What you eat, what you drink, how you sleep, right? All of that. If you're a parent, same thing. It can rotate around whatever your highest love is. And so most of the time, that's your children. So all of a sudden now, your, your life begins to look different. And you're, order, and you're rearranging your life according to that first love. It could be destructive expressions, right? Depleting expressions of first loves, right? A love for a certain addiction, substance abuse, pornography, the addiction to power, or even what's more socially acceptable, work. An addiction to work, especially here in the Bay Area, right? It's essentially when we have that one love that organizes and shapes the rest of our life and every other love and every other behavior and every other action and every other desire and every other wish. That's why someone who's prone to overwork, we call them a workaholic, right? Because we know inherently that that sort of focus on work, that primary love of work is addictive. It's a person that will compromise their health, their family relationships, so that way they can have the next, bit, next professional hit or get the next professional high, right? And what sin does is sin comes in and sort of rearranges our loves. It disorders our loves. And so things that you should not love, you begin to love. Or even things that you can love, you begin to love more than you should. See, look at this. This is how Augustine puts it. He says, living a holy life requires one to love things. That is to say, in the right order. So that you do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love what is to be loved. Or have a greater love for what should be loved less. See that? And what Jesus here is saying to John is that we have, to, we have to make sure that we take inventory of the loves that we have. Is he the one that is going to be our primary love above all other loves? Is he the one who properly and appropriately orders all of our other loves and, and our life? Is he, is he who we see things through and by? C.S. Lewis put it this way, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I can see it, but because by it, I see everything else. You see that? He's basically saying that the sun gives illumination and perspective to everything around him. And so it is with God. It is the reality of God as the creator who gives perspective. He gives place. He gives purpose. He gives illumination to the proper indexing and ordering of our loves, you see. The life of love. 
Because the reality is, is that when it says, when he says you've, you've, you, you have, you know, lost your first love, what he's really saying this is your love for God and your love for others. And, and, and the reality is, is Christians are called to love. We're called to love many things, but there has to be an order to that love. And so then he gives us a warning. Look at this, verse 2, a warning about our loves. Verse 2. He says this. This is interesting. He says this is the praise part. This is the accommodation part of the letter. He says, I know your deeds, right? I know your deeds, right? I know your labor. He says, I I know your good works. He says, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. Man, is that something for Jesus to say about a church, right? I mean, if Jesus said 10% about that for me, I'd feel like, man, I'm doing pretty good, right? Just 10%. This was an amazing church. This was the model church. This was the church that seemed that if you wanted to go and be like, okay, how should church be? Okay, let's look at Ephesus. And let's look at that church because they seem to have it all together. In other words, they didn't just have their orthodoxy right, but in some ways they even had their orthopraxy right. In other words, they persevered through great persecution. They didn't put up with fake believers and false teachers, right? They were strong, right? They were strong. They were an incredible church. Jesus comes in and says, y'all are amazing. That's what he says. Y'all are amazing. When it comes to good works, you guys are it. He looks at the church in the efforts and says, you're strong, you're committed. You're trying to do whatever you can for the kingdom, right? That's it. He says, you, you have good works, you labor, and you are patient and you persevere. He says, when it comes to your good deeds, man, you know how to do it. You roll up your sleeves and you get in there, right? You don't want to sit on the sidelines. He commends them. He, he, he praises them. He says, you get in it, right? You do it. If there's, some, if there's a sign-up sheet for something, you go and sign up. If somebody needs help serving, you're there. Whatever it is, I mean, you're there. You're in it to win it. You are here. You're working. You're laboring. You're sweating. You're getting involved. You're not just here to sort of hear a good, you know, 30-minute message and say amen and leave. But no, you're signing up for teams and you're saying, I'll do it. And, and when something else, and when some other, other person needs help, you're, you're there to help them. You're involved. You're laboring in the kingdom. And that is commendable. And that's commendable. But he also talks about their, 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 them being able to persevere and not in some sort of passive way, but a fortitude with, you know, wherewithal. It, it, it's something that is strong within them and it is consistent in trouble. Do you see that? It's consistent in trouble. In other words, when you have truly godly patience, you can go through something and instead of having the perspective of a pity party, you'll say, you know what? Even though I don't like what I'm going through, what is it that is happening here? I may not understand it completely, but I don't need to know why I need to ask what. In other words, the question goes from why to what. I'm not going to ask why am I going through this, God, but I'm going to say, what are you trying to teach me through this, Lord? Who are you trying to develop me to become in this moment? We need to have more people that are like that. We need to have more people that won't give up so easily, that won't get offended so easily. One offense and you leave the church. My goodness. Right? We can't do that. And he commends them. He commends them. He says, I appreciate that. That's awesome. You're doing great. 
He doesn't just stop there, but he also talks about their willingness to have discernment, that they discern the truth, that they don't just let anybody show up and start preaching something and they just take it for granted that the person knows what you're talking about. No, they test it. They look, they listen, they pay attention, they discern. They don't just let anybody come up and say, well, I mean, I got some revelation from God and they let, you know, put them in front and everybody talk. No, they discern. And that really comes from Acts chapter 19 and 20 because before Paul went to Rome, he spent a lot of time in Ephesus. And while he was with the Ephesians there in the Ephesus church, he was teaching them that, listen, you're going to get a lot of people coming in and saying a lot of crazy stuff. You're going to get false teachers and false prophets. And you have to know your word. You have to know the gospel. You have to know the teachings of Jesus so that way you can discern. So that way you can know what's happening. That way you can get it and understand it and not be tricked and not be fooled. That's one of the problems I have with the contemporary churches today because today we'll listen to anybody. If it sounds good, if it makes it feels good, if it gives us goosebumps, if it makes us shout, if it makes us run, if it makes our eyelashes fall out and our mascara, I mean, we're in it. We're, whoo, that's good. That's a good word. Yeah, makes it, yes, give it to me. And, and it blesses me. And it's all about me and about my wealth and about my health and about how my children are going to do, about my house that I'm going to get and my car I'm going to drive. And all of a sudden, we're, we're in it. We're for it. We're running. We got the banners. We're good to go. We'll let anybody and everybody talk to us. And listen, you have to learn to be picky eaters. You have to learn to be picky eaters. You can't let anybody just cook for you. You got to make sure that the meal that you are eating is full of the gospel. Yes, that's good. That's and he says, you guys do that great. He says it to the Ephesian church. You got it. You got it. There were a lot of praise worthy characteristics of this church. But he says, but this one thing, this one thing, it's interesting that this is the first church that he addresses because of the status of this church, you would have figured that he wouldn't have had to address them at all, but he addresses them first. And he says, there's one thing I hold against you. Look at this verse four. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Wow. Repent and do the things you did at first. He says, if you don't repent, then I will come to you and I will remove the lampstand from its place. Man, you guys, this is what it looks like to have everything but miss the main thing. This is what it looks like to be able to have all the skill sets, to be able to have all the abilities, to be able to have all of the prerequisites, to be able to have everything but yet miss the main thing. Wow. Ephesus. Ephesus was an incredible city. It was world famous for its religions, for its culture, for its economics. It was famous uh, for the temple of Diana, which was a fertility goddess, worshipped. It had this tremendous temple to Diana. And it was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was supported by 127 pillars, each of them 60 feet tall. And it was adorned with great sculptures. Ephesus, this city, was a bustling city. Think of San Francisco or New York or L.A. It was a port city. It was a city that was filled with all different kinds of uh, thought and belief systems. 
And this is the city that this church was planted in, that Timothy pastored. It was a bustling city. And what's interesting is archaeologists, as they began to unearth and find different things about this city, what they found was this, is that, is that as great as this city was to Asia Minor, as incredibly and influential as this city was, Structurally speaking, it had a problem. It could not manage its silting process. See, what silting is, is, is when the dirt and debris would wash up from the sea and begin to push the border of the city back. So as more water and debris would come in, it would bring up dirt and the, 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 the limits of the city would go back and back and back. And so what they had to do was they had to come and they had to, that what they were supposed to do is come and fix that foundation, you see. They were supposed to keep dredging the dirt, but they got complacent. And so they lost much of their foundation. All of a sudden, an inch turned into a foot. A foot turned into a yard. Yards turned into miles. And what archaeologists have discovered is that actually <laughs> where Ephesus is now is seven miles away from where it used to be. Seven miles away. Listen, that does not happen overnight. You don't just fall out of love overnight. You don't just, you don't just fall from your first love overnight. It's little things little things that begin to take place, other priorities, other loves, and you begin to slowly move your first love down a notch and down a notch and down a notch, and the other loves begin to take priority. You see? It slowly begins to happen. Wow. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, he says, I get that you are doctrinally sound. You are doctrinally aware. You detect false teachers and you figure out what's wrong about their teaching. You know the right things. You believe in church discipline. And yet that is not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough just to do the right things and believe the right things. It's not enough. Because even though he's doing, they're doing all of these things, the question is, what is their motive? Why are they doing it? Why are they doing it? And are we to not ask the same question? When we serve, when we attend, why are we doing it? Are we doing it out of some sort of religious duty or relational delight? Why are we doing it? And so here he is and God is saying, listen, you can have impeccable theological awareness but God says, I don't want your record and I don't want your reputation. I don't want your doctrinal proficiency. He says, I want your heart. I want your heart. In spite of all the good things that you're doing doctrinally true, that you are morally adherent, he tells them you've lost your first love. You've forsaken the love you first had. And he says, repent, repent. Now, that word repentance today have a, has a lot of negative religious connotations to it, doesn't it? 
We think about repentance and we think of somebody sort of maybe, you know, you know, hit their head down in shame, sort of beating themselves up. And for a culture that's all about self-indulgence and self-actualization and self-care, why would we repent? That sounds ludicrous. Why would we put ourselves through, through such shame? Well, see, we don't understand repentance. See, because repentance literally means to return, to turn around. Repentance means to do an about face, to change directions. In other words, in this context, to turn from all those unsatisfying, distracting, life-depleting pursuits of your heart and come back to the first love you once had. It's not about being under a cloud of guilt or self-recrimination, but it's about turning, about turning around to Jesus Christ. See? It's not about attempting. He says, I don't need your attempts, your attempts to try to make things right. I don't need your attempts and your promises. Well, I'm going to do better next time, Lord. He says, I just want you. And I want to be your first love. Moment by moment. Look what preacher Edward Welch says. He's pretty famous. Anyway, he says this. Scripture considers repentance a path to liberation, not condemnation. Scripture considers repentance a path to liberation, not condemnation. For many, when you hear repent, what you hear is condemnation. But what you have to understand, and that is not the gospel's understanding of repentance. The gospel's understanding of repentance is to be liberated. It's a coming to your senses. It's a returning. It's an acknowledgement that our hearts are fickle, that our hearts get distracted. In other words, repenting is falling in love with Jesus again. That's what it is. We used to sing a song that says, our hearts are prone to wander, Lord, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take it, seal it. Seal it in thy courts above. And while Revelation chapter 2 does describe consequences for the failure to repent, for instance, it says, if you do not repent, I will remove the lampstand from its place. I will remove my presence from you. And in some ways, that is just natural consequences of not turning back to Jesus, right? If you don't turn back to him, then you're not going to be in his presence. That's a natural consequence. But also, the lampstand also represents the witness of the church. The church's ability and desire to witness to those around. Look what R.C. Sproul says. He says this, Christ threatens to remove the church unless its people repent. If the church does not shine its light of witness, then God will remove them as a lampstand, i.e., not, no longer considered a true lampstand. That is a true church. They will no longer be considered a true church. What is he saying? He's saying this, that their love had grown cold and how he knew their love had grown cold is because they were no longer witnessing about their faith. It means this, that their willingness to be public about our faith, to share with others about Jesus, is a direct reflection of the love that we have for him. Yeah. 
our willingness. So if you want to say, well, I don't know, man, how, how do I know? Maybe, I'm, maybe I have gone, gone, gone cold. Maybe I have gone to sit. Maybe I have, you know, forgotten my first love. How do I know if I did? Well, one way is this, is that you're not sharing about him to anybody. To anybody. Your willingness to speak to people about Jesus is a direct reflection of who your first love is, Right? Think about it, when something thrilling happens to you, when something uh, exciting happens to you, when something amazing happens to you, a new restaurant, a new vacation spot, a new child in your life, who you're dating now, any of those things, something that's breathtakingly beautiful and transformed, you can't help but share it with other people, right? We do. Wow. See, one way you know if you've distanced yourself from the love of God is because you've distanced yourself from the love of others. The way you love others isn't the same anymore. You don't share the gospel because your hearts have grown cold. And so the threat is to remove the lampstand altogether. And yet, he invites us to return to him. And yet he invites us to return to him. And he gives us a promise. There is a promise of new love. Look at this, verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. To the one who is victorious, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Do you see the promise? The promise is this, is when you make me your first love, when I am the, the, when the love that you have for me is priority over all other loves, my promise is this, is that you will have eternal salvation, eternal relationship with me, eternally be in my presence. Now, I grew up in a church where if you talked about salvation, when you preached about soteriology, when you mentioned the blood of Jesus, people would begin to cry out and begin to shout and begin to run around. Some people would bow down and and have broken hearts. Some people would quietly begin to just contemplate where they are in life. Today, when you go to talk about it, you don't even bat an eye because we live in a consumeristic, self-entitled generation that says, is that all? For others of you, maybe you worry. Maybe when you think about death and you think about what's going to happen after, you worry. You say, how do I know if I'm really saved? What if, what if I got it wrong? What if I'm not holy enough? What if something's missing? What if I end up in hell and not in heaven? And you've been a Christian for a long time and you don't admit that fear to anybody, but it haunts you. Do you hear the promise that's being given? The confidence and peace that you can have? how you can rest in the promises of God because he is faithful and his promises are yes and amen. Did we not just sing about that this morning? Yes. You see? The promise of new love. The promise of new love. A love that will always be there for us. A love that will never leave us never forsake us, never deny us. A love that does not just demand like a slave master. That's what these other loves will do, you see. 
What's your relationship with Jesus Christ? Is he your first love or is he just one of your loves amongst other competing loves? You see? And there is no, there is no both. You can't be first and not first. Yeah. Either you're first or you're not. That's right? right? Yeah. Either you're first or you're not. Is he that? Or has he become a God to you that has conditions that you've put on stipulations, that you have qualifications and exit clauses, right? I think if we were honest this morning, many of us would here would admit, you know what, Pastor Roger? I'm not where I used to be. My love for Jesus isn't where it used to be. The passion, the drive, the understanding, the desire isn't where it used to be. It's not there. It's not there. Other things have taken those spots. And so now when you think about prayer, you just feel guilt. When you, when you hear about somebody, a pastor challenging you to read your Bible, you're like, oh, there's another thing I gotta do. Right? When it comes to witnessing about Jesus Christ, oh no, you don't, you don't want to allow that relationship to grow weird. And I'm not saying go and get on, you know, a box in the middle, you know, of your work and start, you know, proclaiming, you know, I'm not talking about, but I'm like, man, can you build relationship with at least one person at your job and then maybe invite them over for a barbecue? I get it. Maybe you can't speak about Jesus at your job. Okay, I get it. I'm not saying go and get fired, but I am saying, well, what about, you know, building a relationship and then like maybe take them bowling or something. And while you're there, be like, hey man, we have this meetup thing coming up. We're going to have, you know, kick it with some friends at me. You know what I'm saying? Ask them like, oh, okay, so what do you do? Like, what, what's your family life like? Okay, what do you do? You know, da, da, da. And, and, and they ask you like, well, actually on Sundays, you know, I go to church. Like, you know, begin to have a relationship and you don't have to have some sort of, it, you know, it doesn't have to be one conversation and then, you know, that's it. No, continue to have the conversation. But what I'm saying is, otherwise, but you're not doing that. We're not doing that. This letter was not written to us, but man was it written for us. Right? Because this is what he says. He says, listen, you will have access. You will have access to the tree of life. In other words, he's saying you'll have access to the Garden of Eden again. Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve, humanity got kicked out. We got kicked out. And then an angel with a flaming sword was put at the entrance. So that way there was no way of coming back and being able to eat from the tree of life. There was no way to do it unless you came under the blade. There had to be death. And what Jesus says is, listen, if I am your first love, if I am your first priority, not only will I begin to reorder the other loves in your life, and not only will from that you'll be naturally begin to get peace, and you'll be able to endure suffering and hardships, and you'll be able to love others, and you'll be able to have a better understanding of who you are and what's going on in your life. Not only will you be able to deal with anxiety and frustration and, and, and all this other stuff that seems to bombard you and the constant need to have to compete with others, not only will you be able to, to have resolve for all of those things. He says, but guess what? You're going to be able to get back into the garden. And here's why. Not because death had to be skipped. Not because the blade was taken away. No, because Jesus did it for you. Uh -huh. 
See, you're able to get to the tree of life because he embraced the tree of death. He went under the blade. Abraham's knife did not stop that day on the hill of Golgotha, but it went through and through and Jesus Christ died and he reordered everything in his life to make you priority. Won't you do it for him? You see, the God that invites you to chase after him, the God that's inviting you to run after him, no matter how far you've gone. And I know sometimes you wake up and you're like, I don't know how I got this distant from God. And I, don't, I can't even get back. That's why I can't pray, because I don't even know how to get back to it. I just, I don't even know where to start. And God says, listen, that you can't go so far that my grace cannot reach. And he says, but the, the, the same God that's inviting you to run after him, the reality is, is he's been running after you. He's been running after you. We need to repent. What do you mean, Pastor Roger? We need to fall in love with Jesus again. And I invite you to do that, church, right here, right now. Would you stand to your feet as we begin to respond? And in this response, will you do that? Will you run after him because he has been running after you? Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us access to your presence. In fact, on the cross, God, you cried out, you shrieked out, God, why have you forsaken me? You were denied the presence of the Father so we could have the Father's presence. Lord, I pray this morning that we will take a deep look into not just what we love, but where do those love, Lord God, take priority? How do those loves index everything else in our lives. And I pray that as we do that, Lord God, that we will continually put you back in that place, that we'll continually run to you again and again and again as our hearts wander, as our hearts get distracted, that we will repent over and over, we'll fall in love with you again over and over. And I thank you because you faithful in Jesus name listen this morning if this message you felt and I know we don't normally do that and I know you know different churches have different cultures and traditions and and but let, I'll just say this if you're like you know Pastor Roger I've been feeling distant from God and I just I haven't known how to really get back and you just want some prayer will you find me after service I'd love to pray with you um not because uh, I don't get distant, because I too get distant from the Lord. And I know what it is to go back to him again and again and again. Amen? Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Bless you. In Jesus' name. God bless you.